You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh. Hey, y'all. Uh, apparently this morning, uh, the servers that crashed this morning uh, that were just overwhelmed with the internet. So um, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, we hopefully caught the audio um, we caught the audio from the sermon, and uh, hopefully that uh, will be up on uh, on the website. Uh, but thanks for bearing with us. I, I think it's an important lesson because it just goes to show that we can't rely on the gospel getting out and moving forward, just relying on technology. And so I worry about those churches that are thinking, oh, we'll just do something on a Sunday morning, because if that's all they're doing, then this morning they were in big trouble. But we're going to have to figure out more creative ways to get the gospel out uh, than, than just this way. And, and that's hard, too, because we, we have to social distance, and, and, and that's all right and, and well and good. But I hope that churches are taking seriously uh, the call to share the gospel and engage in word ministry uh, one to another uh, beyond just what we do on uh, on Sunday mornings. And I don't think that um, that it's just a band-aid either. Uh, it, it seems to me that there are any number of pastors out here who think, oh, well, we'll just go on like this for a little bit and then we'll just get back to normal. And uh, I'm afraid that that the normal that we once knew is not going to be the normal moving forward. Uh, it's going to be different the way that we do ministry, and I think better, uh, because it's going to mean that it just can't be the clergy doing all the work, but we're really going to need to know what it means to be the body of Christ pulling together and encouraging one another on as the day of the Lord draws near. Uh, very grateful, though, to be with you this morning as we uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1. It seems like a donkey's age uh, that we were uh, in Ephesians 1. Uh, we did take a little bit of a break, uh, but uh, it, it's just remarkable to me that it was just uh, two Sundays ago that we were uh, here together, uh, gathered, and now um, we're not uh, for the foreseeable future. So uh, I trust that this study on Ephesians will continue and, and would edify you. As I mentioned in the sermon, what little bit you probably heard, um, coronavirus can't consume us, but it, it does affect the way that we do ministry. And so coronavirus is not our focus, but Jesus is. And so as we work through Ephesians chapter 1... If some of you are saying, well, what does that have to do with me in this present day and age, Uh, you would be mistaking the ability of God's Word to speak into your situation right now. And especially this morning's verses, uh, where I really don't plan on bringing up coronavirus uh, at all, but looking at Ephesians chapter 1, which is if you have one of the Advent leather-bound Bibles that were given away a couple years back, that's page 976. Or if you've swiped one of our pew Bibles, which you're always welcome to do, uh, God's Word is not chained, uh, that you would find it on page 976 as well. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. 
in him, that is Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we've talked about God the Father's electing work in our salvation. Paul writes that before the foundations of the world, God chose us in Him that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God is making for Himself a people, and that's what He's setting out to do. That's the meta narrative of the Bible. Even when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the Garden of Eden, the gospel promise is given that there's going to come one who is going to have his heel bruised by the serpent, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Up to this point, Adam and Eve, have nothing has been killed, but God kills animals in order to provide them clothing from their skins, and He clothes them in these sacrifices and sends them out of the garden with that promise. And the story of the Bible is about God getting His people back. And the way that He does that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That the work of the Son is sacrificial. He pours His life out and dies in order that we might live. And this morning we finally get to the work of the Holy Spirit in our redemption. Now again, I want to say it's not as if the Godhead, because it's one, it, the Godhead is one in three, and three in one, and so it's not as if God the Father is exclusively doing this, because where was Jesus when God was forming the earth? John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Where was the Spirit at the beginning of creation? The Spirit hovered over the waters. So let's not break it up so distinctly, but Paul wants to talk to us about the fullness of our salvation and the fullness of God involved in making us His children. And he does this by choosing us, by pouring out, his, uh, by pouring out uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, and then finally by sending us and sealing us with his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been involved in everything we have said thus far, and I want you to be sure to use the right language when we talk about the Holy Spirit. When we talk about God, we use pronouns. We say he. God the Father, He. God the Son, He. But for some reason, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, who actually we have more interaction with than any other part of the Godhead, we have a propensity to refer to Him as it. But the Holy Spirit is not an it. We're not in Star Wars. He's not an impersonal force that just sort of governs all of creation. He is God. God the Holy Spirit. And so we ref when we refer to Him, we ought to refer to Him in personal language in the same way that we do the Father and the Son. So we call the Holy Spirit Him. And He's been involved in everything that we have said thus far about our redemption. We cannot be made aware of our need of redemption 
and we cannot believe on the Lord Jesus Christ without Him. It is the Holy Spirit who begins that great work in our heart that opens the eyes of our hearts to be able to see the condition that we're in as broken, sinful people with no health in us and no hope for rescue, but also to open our eyes to Jesus Christ, who is our only hope for rescue. That's the work of the Spirit. Paul reminds us, of the way in which we can become certain of the things that we've talked about before and enjoy something of their glory and their greatness even while we are in this world. And so as I said before, that when Paul talks about things like predestination or election uh, and we talk about the exclusive nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our world, we tend to shy away from these things and think this is not what we ought to talk about in polite conversation. Not only does Paul bring them up, he rejoices in them. This is a hymn of sorts where he says, not only am I not unafraid to talk about election or Jesus' death on the cross, I'm going to sing about them to the praise of His glory. And the Holy Spirit, it is He that allows that to happen. Because when the Spirit is poured into our hearts, we are able to cry, as Paul says elsewhere, Abba, Father, for we know that we are children of God. Now, this has been a little bit of a controversy lately, because we're talking about can we know that we're children of God apart from an inward witness? Because on the one hand, there's the objective reality that we're made children of God by the Lord Jesus Christ, by His death and resurrection. We're not natural-born children of God. We didn't choose to become children of God, as uh, John says in chapter 1. But we are made children of God by God Himself, and He pours His Spirit into our hearts. And we can say, I know I'm a child of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sure enough, there are times in our lives where we don't feel like children of God. We may feel like God has abandoned us. We may feel like we've abandoned God or that we're too far gone. Lord, I don't feel that I'm very close to you. I don't feel that I'm in relationship with you. And it's in those moments that we need to turn to God's Word for the assurance that we are indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Full stop. Objectively speaking, if if we are in Christ, Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, that no one can snatch us out of His hand. If you can't earn your salvation... There's nothing that you can do to unearn it. That's an objective fact that we need to be reminded of, that we need to preach to ourselves, and that we need to preach to one another. The great hymn writer wrote, uh, uh, what hymn is that? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. You know, my hope is built on nothing less. Thank you, one person in the studio audience who also is the music guy. My hope is built. One of the lines goes, we dare not trust the sweetest frame, 
but wholly trust on Jesus' name. It's not that we're against sweet frames or, or, or your disposition or how you feel in the moment, but ultimately we trust in Jesus, not in circumstance, not in how we feel inwardly. Now, that being said, what we're reading here in Ephesians chapter 1, by being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and is the guarantee, the deposit of our inheritance until we acquire full possession, it means that the Holy Spirit ought to be witnessing to you inwardly so that you can testify that you're a child of God. And so if someone came to me and said, I've never felt the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, I don't know really what it means to be a child of God. I don't think that we simply go back to whether or not the Spirit has come into your life, but we actually go back to whether or not you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that it's nonstop. Even Paul says here, it's a deposit. He's a deposit. It's not prolonged. And it may be that you go back to those moments in your life where I said, you know, I don't feel the Lord very much right now, but I know He's real. But ultimately, our relationship and our standing with God is not based on our feelings, but on the truth of God's Word and that God promises that He is going to send His Spirit to testify to the work of God in your life and that we can enjoy that even while we're in this world until we fully enjoy it when we behold the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, whether that's when we die or whether He comes again. That's when we'll know it fully. And all doubt and fear is completely cast out of our hearts. And we only know what it means to rest in the love of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Spirit. Now, what does Paul mean by some of the words that he's spoken? Because in our tradition, these words have been fiddled with a little bit in such a way that they might be confusing to us. But even if you're not an Anglican this morning listening, you should probably hear this as well, because it's still God's Word. So Paul writes, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What does Paul mean by seal? Now, in order to know what Paul means, we need to know the definitions under which Paul was working. Even though we believe this to be the inspired word of God, we understand that the, all, the personality of the authors comes through. And so when we're reading something and we see a word like seal, we need to wonder what it is that Paul, what was Paul's understanding of that word when he wrote it in that time? Well, there are a couple options for this. And it could be any or all, but let's look at them. One, a seal is that which authenticates or conveys authority. So when you get a document with a seal on it, it lets you know that this is the real deal. In our culture, often we can't just sign a document, we have to get it notarized. The signature's not enough for the notary. What do they have to do? They have to get out their little instrument, they have to clamp down on it. The seal is required. 
It authenticates the document. It says that it's real. It says that the content of it can be trusted. A second meaning, in addition to that which authenticates or conveys authority, is that a seal is a mark of ownership. And so growing up uh, in a farming community, uh, people would tag animals. They would put numbers on their ear. Uh, some of the sheep farmers would, uh, would put a certain dye uh, on the wool uh, in order to mark them out. And that would let you know that, that you own them. Or if you've ever traveled abroad and you've been walking through a capital city and you walk past the U.S. Embassy, how do you know that it's the U.S. Embassy? Well, it probably says U.S. Embassy out front, but there's the seal of the United States. Right? So you know that seal means that that's the United States Embassy. It belongs to the United States. Or this animal with this tag on its ear belongs to this farmer. So a seal is that which authenticates or conveys authority. A seal is a mark of ownership. Thirdly, a seal can be something that secures something. Uh, Growing up, golly, I don't remember the last time I heard about anybody doing this, uh, but we would do cold packing. Did you all ever do cold packing? You're from Sealy. You you did some cold packing, didn't you? Um, uh, where you would take, you would basically take raw vegetables and you'd can them. Uh, and you can go look up what cold packing and warm packing is. But anyway, uh, it, it, it was a process by which you sealed something into something else. Or how you seal a letter. Or when we read in the New Testament that Jesus' tomb was sealed to prevent his body being stolen. Right? It's to keep something in that can't get out. Okay, so there are three meanings. Authenticity and authority, ownership, security, and safety. So those are the cultural understandings that Paul is working with in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, how does the Bible speak of sealing? Well, if you turn with me to John three, thirty-three. We can take a look at what, how the Bible might talk about sealing. John 3.33 on page 888. Whoever receives his testimony, that is uh, Jesus, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And so when someone believes the gospel and accepts it, they are expressing agreement and authenticating it is true. So when the Bible speaks of sealing, it does speak in the terms of, of, of what we see culturally in Paul's day. So in John chapter 3, we see that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and we say that testimony is true about who Jesus is and what He's done for us, we set our seal upon it. We, we put our notary stamp on it. It's true. We authenticate it. And in fact, we see the opposite of this. And John, used, uh, John once again, but this time in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. I'll read this for us. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the Son. So to believe in the gospel is to place your seal upon it. Not to believe it is to call God a liar. You won't authenticate it because you believe it's a fake. If you think that the message of the gospel is a fake, you're not going to put your seal on it. Just like you wouldn't put your seal on any document that you think is a fake. Or even if you're unsure about it, you're, you know, if somebody says, hey, I have this document here that sends all this money to your bank account, you know, some prince in the Philippines or Nigeria or wherever they are right now, who says you've got, you're going to want some sort of authentication that what they're saying is true. And if you think it's true, you're going to be willing to put the seal on it as well. But if you think it's a lie, there's no way you're going to put your seal on it. And so those who believe in the gospel are saying, I believe what God says is true and I'm putting my seal upon it. And if you don't put your seal upon it, you're saying, I think what God is saying is a lie. And so the Bible speaks of it in that way. But we also see how God authenticates things through sealing. So again, uh, just sticking with John, just to show that John uses this language consistently. John chapter 6, verse 27. John, uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and has walked on water, and then he begins to talk about being the bread of life. But Jesus says this, Do not labor for the food that perishes, Is this right? But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of, yes, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Meaning that God has authenticated Jesus, he's put his seal upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this audibly in two instances. So if we want to go over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is Jesus' baptism at the River Jordan. 3, 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father has set His seal upon the Lord Jesus Christ at His baptism. For all to hear. Another instance of this is at the transfiguration. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now looking back at John chapter 6 where Jesus fed the 5,000, this seal of approval that God has laid upon Jesus is confirmed by His works. Remember when uh, John the Baptist sent his representatives to Je- uh, when uh, sent uh, when he was in prison sent his representatives. What did Jesus say? Are you the Messiah? He said, "My authentication as the Messiah is certified by a word from God the Father, but also confirmed by my works. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk." The captive has been set free. 
And so when it comes to sealing, it must mean for us what it meant for the Lord Himself. It means that we can be authenticated, that it can be established by intelligible signs that we are indeed the children of God and joint heirs with our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, to be authenticated as one who belongs to the Lord Jesus. Now, this can get a little bit confusing, as I said earlier on, in our tradition. And what do I mean by that? In our tradition, when we, according to the 1979 prayer book, after someone is baptized, whether that be a child or an adult, we say to them, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Now, what does that mean? Especially in light of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, in the first instance, as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, this is the verse that is being quoted in the baptism service. But do you read of baptism anywhere in this passage? No. It's a misappropriation of the Ephesians verse into the baptism service. And if you don't understand what sealing means, it can cause great confusion. Because many people will, make, will take it to mean that sealing is like how Jesus' tomb was sealed. Or, or how we seal an envelope, meaning that it's a done deal. That by baptism, we are now, our salvation is sealed because of our baptism. But that stands at odds with God's Word and certainly at odds with this. Because what? We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And how, is, how does that happen? Verse 13, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. It is then, in that order, that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The testimony came into your heart. Sealing doesn't come through baptism. Sealing comes through faith. And in fact, the 1979 baptism service affirms this when it says, we baptize those who come to Him in faith, which is a strange thing to say especially when you're baptizing a baby, because you can ask the question, well, how can a baby come to faith? And yet that's what we've just said we're going to do. We're going to baptize this baby who's come to him in faith. Well, it points back to the whole issue of election, of that we are trusting that when we bring this child up who is a part of this covenant community, and we're going to relate to them and treat them as if they are actually believers. But baptism in and of itself, divorced from faith, is not efficacious. It will not save you. We have plenty of examples in the Old and New Testament of people who were baptized, whether in the Old Testament that there were those who were circumcised of the flesh but not circumcised of the heart, and those in the New Testament who were baptized with water, and yet didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't have the Holy Spirit in their lives. And indeed, when a child is brought to the font to be baptized, 
We make a commitment that we see that this child who was brought forward, that we'll do everything in our power to support them in their life in Christ. Which, although baptism is a powerful, invisible word of God's salvation to sinners, and when a child comes forward, the very graphic illustration of that this child has to be carried, this child is not coming on their own volition, and they're going to get baptized whether they want it or not. And yet, we're going to evangelize this child. We're going to disciple this child so that they do come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we have a service of confirmation. And when we have confirmation, the bishop doesn't confirm anybody. The person, the individual, confirms their faith in Jesus Christ before the congregation. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And as a response of that declaration of faith, the bishop then prays for them by laying his hands or her hands on him. But they themselves are confirming that God has worked in their heart and the Spirit has testified to them that they are indeed a child of God as they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ after they've heard the word of truth the gospel of their salvation. I mean, after all, if we really are sealed in that way in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever, I should be walking around Birmingham with a water pistol and shooting everybody that I possibly can. But baptism divorced from faith is not efficacious. What seals us with the promised Holy Spirit is our turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and putting our trust in Him. And that sealing is an authentication that indeed we are children of God and joint heirs of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, there is a point in the service that I, I like to do when we have the little ones gathered up front where I take the water, and for those of you that think this is sacrilegious, I, I want you to listen to me for a minute, where I take the water and I throw it on the children, and I say, remember your baptism. And really what I'm saying is I want them to remember who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what He's done for them, that in their baptism... The gospel was preached that they've died with Christ and they've been raised with Christ and are joint heirs with Christ of His heavenly kingdom. I want them to remember that. I don't want them to remember, oh, you've been baptized and so that's all there is to it. And those of us who do know the Lord Jesus Christ treat our baptism as a precious commodity And we do hearken back to it. We remember who we are, that our life is hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that this outward invisible sign pales in comparison to the invisible and inward work of God the Holy Spirit in bringing us to faith in Him. That's our testimony when we say we remember our baptism. Baptism is a sign, right? The Lord Jesus talks about that in John chapter 6. You come to me because I fed you with a bag lunch, and you saw that we put leftovers in the boat. That's why you're here, because I filled your bellies. 
but you're settling for the sign rather than the one that the sign points to. Baptism is never a means, an end or means unto itself, nor is the Lord's table. They point to something. They point to someone. The Reformers were right. They called it a visible word. It preaches the gospel. Baptism preaches the gospel. The table preaches the gospel. And so when we come to baptism, we come in faith. When we come to the Lord's table, we come in faith. And so even now, as we're virtually meeting together, many of you rightly wonder, when's the next time I'm going to have Holy Communion? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you already have communion with God. Because when we feed upon Him, we feed upon Him not with our teeth and our mouths, but we feed upon Him by faith with our hearts. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not something unique about coming to the Lord's table together or coming to the font But all of that is received by faith, and it only actually means something. It's only efficacious when we come to Him in faith. Then we know what it means to feed upon Christ. Then we know what it means to be baptized into His death and into His resurrection. And the Holy Spirit Himself testifies to all of these things. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We've been given this deposit, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly or through a glass dimly. Have you ever wondered what that means? It means that, as C.S. Lewis put it, we are in the shadowlands. We can kind of catch glimpses of our future glory, but we're not going to realize it until we actually are there. But what God has done is He's put down earnest money in the form of His Spirit into our hearts. I want you to have a taste of it. I want you to know that I'm serious about redeeming you. I want you to know that I'm serious about making you my child. And so I'm going to give this down payment, this earnest money that you're going to experience in your life, the power of the Holy Spirit, which is not just a feeling, but actually is empowering. The only way that we're going to actually get anyone to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ is by the power of His Spirit. Not through our eloquence, not through our intelligence. Now, God may use those things, but ultimately, people come to know Jesus because of the intervention of His Spirit. And so, we know His power The very Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the Spirit who dwells within you. Do you ever stop and contemplate that? Again, as I said in the beginning, it's strange because normally we refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, and yet He's the one that we have more intimacy with because He dwells within us. And it may be because of His proximity to us that we have the hardest time relating to Him. It may be because Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, is farther away that we might think, well, I I can relate to Him at a distance. 
or God the Father is a creating God, and yet God Himself has come down into our very hearts. And when He's that near, when He's that intimate, we don't like it. I mean, many of us are hardwired that way, that, that anytime someone in our lives starts to get a little too close to us, a little too intimate, that's when we start pushing away. And yet what God does is He not only comes next to you, He pours His Spirit into you. And so there's no such thing as a relationship with God apart from intimacy that is brought about by the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And that's just a down payment. And our hearts long eagerly for that day when we acquire possession of Him fully to the praise of His glory. So that's what it means. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I'd ask that if you have questions or comments or concerns, please do uh, email me, andrew at cathedraladvent.com. Uh, I'd welcome those, and hopefully we can pick up with them next week, but let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that this Word would take deep root in our hearts and that Your Spirit would powerfully work, that we would know what it means to carry Your seal, Your authentication, that we belong to You, Lord Jesus, and that no one can snatch us out of Your hand, and what it really means to have intimacy with You by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, break down our hearts. Lord, create a way for the Spirit to permeate all of us that even though we find ourselves in isolation, we know that we're not alone for you are with us and dwell within us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.